Well, thank you very much, uh, John, for that introduction. It's great to be here. As I've said, um, part of my journey uh, as I was doing learning German in preparation for my uh, doctoral dissertation is I was also learning Lutheranism at the same time, and I have seen this stage in every possible permutation with uh, the videos and heard the audio, and now to be standing here is nothing short of uh, sort of astounding for me, and so I'm, I'm a little uh, uh, taken aback. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and have a deep and abiding love um, for your seminary and the, um, the many professors here whose works have edified me um, and, and in no small way changed, changed the direction and course of my life. And so I'm, um, I'm deeply thankful for the invitation and, and honored, in fact. And I do have to say, I have to apologize off the beginning if I snort and or blow my nose a little bit. I have three um, Petri dishes at home um, with blue eyes and brown eyes and another blue-eyed one. Um, those are children, you know, it's a joke, uh, but there we go. Um, and uh, I'm surprised that my son uh, has any liquids left in his body, but nevertheless, he has given it to me, and so I apologize in advance. Um, that was a little bit of an opportunity to sort of make a connection with you all, you know, sort of like, he's human too, hey, there we go. So, um, all very calculated. Uh, so, what am I doing here? Well, uh, I'm a pastor. I mean, I am a trained systematic theologian, but I do not operate, operate in the academy um, very frequently. And so, I had a deep and abiding um, uh, love for this topic as it was presented to me by John, because I do believe strongly that this understanding of the distinction between law and gospel is, in fact, the, the, the paramount idea, the, the, the crucial um, uh, understanding that a pastor needs in order to be effective uh, for his or her or his sheep. Um, and that's why um, the talk to today is the comforting the heart of hearing, distinguishing law and gospel as pastoral care. And so just by way of introduction still, uh, the roots of the English Reformation, some of you may know, have very, are very closely tied with um, the, what we would say the Continental Reformation. In fact, as I was mentioning uh, last night, Archbishop Cranmer, who's the architect of our prayer book, actually took a papal, I mean, a um, kingly uh, sort of uh, uh, group over to Germany in 1532, and we don't know exactly whom he met with, but we do know that he returned married to the niece of Andreas Osiander. And so in, and upon his arrival back in England, spent the rest of his life until he was killed, um, attempting to put into liturgical form the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that's actually the roots. You won't hear that, of course, um, because there's much confusion about uh, the nature of Anglican identity, of which I'm trying to um, help clarify. Nevertheless, we have deep um, and close roots with uh, much of what you all hold dear. So much so, one of our early reformers named Robert Barnes actually went to Wittenberg, enrolled in Wittenberg under Luther's teaching and under the pseudonym Anglus Anglucanus, and ended up producing something called the Reformation Essays of Robert Barnes, which I commend to you, not the least of which the one on law and gospel. And so, just so you know, we are not speaking from um, totally uh, foreign territory here when, as an Anglican, I talk about um, the distinction. So, what does it mean to pastoral care in the distinguishing of law and gospel? Well, at first glance, it may seem 
as it has always in many cases to be simply identifying where the law is operative and where the gospel is operative. And I would submit to you that insofar as that's a, help, a, a helpful idea, it wasn't the radical idea that Luther discovered in the Bible. In fact, we get this from the Handbook for Curates, a late medieval manual on pastoral ministry by a man named Guido Monterochamp, where he writes of penance, the pastoral work of the priest. He writes this, therefore know that in contrition we should pay attention to these things. First, which is that which is ground up? Second, by whom it is ground up? Third, for what is it ground up or what is the goal of contrition? What is ground up is the heart of the sinner, which is like an earthen vessel full of poison and sin. And therefore, the prophet Joel, by the authority of God, indicating contrition, said, Be converted to me with your whole heart, in fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts, namely, by contrition. That by which the heart of the sinner is ground up is a double millstone, of which one is upward, that is raising up, and this is the hope of kindness, coming from consideration of divine mercy. And the other millstone is downward, weighing down, and this is the fear of penalty coming from consideration of divine justice. And these two millstones ought always to hold the true penitent, and neither one ought to be taken away, nor ought they be handed over to the devil in pledge. This is the work of the priest. And so you see, this was nothing new, this idea of hook and crook or carrot and stick. And in the hands of the priest, it was seen law and grace we raise people up to the extent that they're burdened by their sins, and we, we, we afflict them in the, in the sense that they're, they're not too um, overburdened by, I mean, uh, they're, they're not uh, sufficiently burdened. And this was seen as the work of the priest, of the pastor, of the enlightened. And this is actually how it's often understood today. I mean, y'all have a context in which these, are, these, these terms and these, these um, ideas are, are uh, prevalent and often discussed and very uh, sort of often debated, but outside of this and sort of broad American evangelicalism, if you ever read um, uh, Galatians, <laughs> you know, if you do, um, or, 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 or Romans, uh, if you find yourself in conversation with these terms, then this is naturally how they become used. We will be gracious to the, to the downtrodden, and we will be sort of uh, bring the law on those who seem to be too uh, free, and those are the two millstones. But see, this was not doing justice to the radical diagnosis that the Bible lays at the heart of the human person, the person to whom you will be preaching, the person to whom you will be ministering, the one that Jesus admonishes the Pharisee with, who were complaining that his disciples didn't follow the rules, weren't washing themselves, weren't, weren't um, sufficiently contrite in the way they were behaving. And Jesus famously said, hear and understand in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. He said, explaining the parable to them, are you not without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but from what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a person. And so you see that the diagnosis that had been obscured of the actual plight of the human person to whom you will be speaking was much bigger than the right use of two millstones. It was, in fact, a heart problem that when Luther discovered this, the very first of his 95 Theses gets precisely to this point. The life of penance is no longer, I'm paraphrasing, figuring out the millstones. 
But when our Lord and Master says repent, he meant each and every day. Well, only the person who is constantly aware of the darkness and the depravity of their heart each and every day needs to repent each and every day. And this was the beginning of the pastoral insight that so captivated Luther and transformed the world and captivated Cranmer, sent him to his death, proclaiming that not by my might, but by his alone, we are saved. You see, as long as gospel and law, grace and law, I mean, as long as these were understood as existing in an inverse proportion rather than a distinction, then everything was lost. You have too much gospel, you need more law. You need too much law, you need a little more gospel. This inverse proportion was destroyed by Jesus himself. When he said, look, there's no amount of washing or not washing that's going to get you right, because out of your heart comes what's evil. What you wash or do not wash doesn't defile anyone. So this was the equilibrium that existed, the one that when Luther in particular ran into Paul's magnum opus to the Galatians, reading in chapter 3, began to see that the entire system not simply needed to be fixed, but it needed to be torn down and replaced. And the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Well, you know the rest of this, I assume, that the entire system, as Luther discovered from Paul himself, who was simply reflecting, as Ernst Kazemann said, Paul simply wrote what Jesus did. Paul, reflecting on the person and work of Christ and his life for sinners, goes to the Galatians and, and excoriates them for returning back to this system whereby perhaps with a little cleanliness, perhaps with a little right washing, perhaps you might not need to repent each and every day. And he cries out, O foolish Galatians. So this entirely different system, so to speak, is based, as he said, on the promise. This promise creates faith, which comes by hearing, which then establishes righteousness apart from the law, which then allows for the sinner to confess. Not tomorrow, not once a week, but as Luther wrote, each and every day. So, so here we have it, this new insight, or the old insight, long obscured by obtuse biblical translations and basic ignorance, frankly, of the text by many of the theologians, in fact, um, brought into light by this German friar who was an Old Testament lecturer whose exposition of the Psalms and his reflection on Christ in the Old Testament led him to his exposition of Galatians and this remarkable breakthrough in his own words, as he writes. He says, for a long time, I went astray in the monastery and didn't know what I was about. To be sure, I knew something, but I didn't know what it was until I came to the text in Romans 1.17, he who through faith is righteous shall live. That text helped me. There I saw what righteousness Paul was talking about. Here, somewhat different context, he also writes, earlier in the text, I read righteousness. I related the abstract righteousness with the concrete and became sure of my cause. I learned to distinguish between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of the gospel. 
I lack nothing before this except I made no distinction between the law and the gospel. I regarded both as the same thing and held that there was no difference between Christ and Moses except the times in which they lived in their degree of perfection. But when I discovered the proper distinction, namely that law is one thing and the gospel is another, I made myself free. Now, I would offer to you, um, by way of personal sort of anecdote, but also uh, observed experience, that when this distinction is so discovered, one becomes a pastor. And you can be a pastor in a variety of calls, a variety of vocations. A mother becomes a pastor to her children, a father to his, his children or wife, his, a, a boss to their, to their underlings. This distinction, when so grasped, has no choice but to reorient the heart of the hearer towards a righteousness that is not of their own, destroying, as it were, the millstones and replacing it with a confession of what Christ and Christ alone has done for the sake of sinners. This is why the pastoral reality of theology is so closely intertwined with this distinction. See, for Luther, this freedom that he established could easily be said, change the world. And we've just recently seen the 500th anniversary, and there was um, <laughs> these funny socks in Germany. He said, here I stand on the socks. Get it? It was a joke. It's very, very popular and much funnier in German, clearly. Um, but, um, the, uh, but they also, um, you know, Playmobil, you might know this. I bought like 50 copies of this Playmobil, these little children's toys, you know, sold out of their Martin Luther doll in like two and a half seconds. And they've, you know, they had to re reprint these. And so everyone knows about Luther, but the, the emphasis that he had, I believe, was primarily pastoral. He's a parish priest watching his people labor under the weight of the law, hoping to escape the, the terrors of, of limitless purgatory, having to, to, to be burdened. And then he ran into the gospel and found, as he said, himself made free. That when Luther, just simply reading Paul, the person of God himself became synonymous with salvation. God the Father. The Father of who? of Jesus, who so loved the world that he sent this very Jesus, so that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This identity of God became the gospel, a soteriological concept, a profession of faith. God in himself is not good news. God the Father of Jesus, who so loved you that he laid his life down for you, is worth fighting for. As Paul says, in Romans 5, in the famous passage where God is identified as he who justifies the ungodly. Therefore, he writes, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we all have attained faith, by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. These are the people to whom you will be preaching and ministering, sinners of whom Jesus is the friend, sinners who God 
died for while still in their sin, the ungodly who have been reconciled, not by their own works, but by faith in he who does what he promises to, uh, to justify the ungodly. See, this is what um, uh, Oswald Bayer points out, um, who's the subject of my book, is the uh, Luther's subjectum theologiae, the, the subject of theology, that, um, that marks that distinction between law and gospel in the very identity of God. Because it's not, as Bayer points out, as Cal John Calvin said, that the study of theology is God and man, but the study of theology, as Luther points out, is the justifying God and the sinful human. They're very limiting factors. All theological reflection goes through that sieve. When we speak of God, we do not speak in abstraction. We speak of he who justifies. Who does he then justify? His objects, the sinners who are now made righteous in his sight. This is the only theology that does justice to the cross. This is not a system. This is not a, a philosophy. This isn't even a... Um, uh, a, a theology, really. It's a reflection on how great a length God went to in His Son to reconcile a sinful world to Himself. That is the theology, and that is the person and work of God Himself, which, when distinguished between law and gospel, becomes, well, something to preach, something to give to the burdened, something to minister with to the hurting, something where suffering can actually produce endurance, and endurance can produce character, and character, in all, despite all appearances, can actually emanate in hope. So this is where I want to come back to this idea of the pastorate, because this is not an academic dispute, although many books, uh, long, long books have been written about it, and um, uh, you, which you're probably painfully aware of. And, but this is not an academic dispute because how you understand um, this distinction will have everything to say about the person to whom you are speaking, not simply from the pulpit, but your, your spouse, your friend, your parents. Are they sinners? Are they ungodly? Are they lost in need of saving? Or, as which is often the case for all of us, do you need to pull out your millstones? and make sure that you know how to properly curate their behavior for their best interest. This is what actually passes for most pastoral care, which is unsurprising that fewer and fewer people go to church. Um, that's a whole other issue. So two summers ago, I had an opportunity to go to a uh, sort of a, a think tank, and it's been published, and I mentioned this yesterday to the faculty, in a book called The Two Words, and it's a great book. Urban's published it, it's uh, edited by a friend of mine, and it was an opportunity to sort of be an ecumenical observer as an Anglican to a discussion between the confessionally Reformed and confessionally Lutheran theologians about um, this great question, law and gospel, the two words of God. And what I learned from that, and I commend the book to you, is this very idea is that there is an epistemic limit placed around uh, the theology of, of Luther, so understood, that that forces the proclamation of the gospel. It is not, as we saw before, necessarily inherent in a Reformed understanding. Because when God, as we've said before, is identified as he who saves, well, then we need to go in search of someone for him to get. 
And so this is where um, I ran into this. So for instance, one of the participants, a wonderful theologian, um, VTS, named Catherine Sondager, she writes this uh, in the introduction to her volume one, The Doctrine of God. I want you to see how this works. The mystery of the Almighty God is most properly an explication of the oneness of God, tying the faith of the church to the bedrock of Israel's confession of the Lord of the covenant, the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of divine attributes then is set out as a reflection on Holy Scripture. The one God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, and all these as expressions of the love who is God. Systematic theology must make bold claims about its knowledge and service of this one Lord. The invisible God must be seen and known in the visible. In this way, God and God's relation to creation are distinguished but not separated from Christology, the doctrine of perfections from redemption. The Lord God will be seen as compatible with creatures and the divine perfections express formally distinct and unique relations to the world. This systematic theology then begins from the treaty De Deo Uno and develops the dogma of the Trinity as an expression of divine unicity upon which will depend creation. Christology and ecclesiology, in the end, the transcendent beauty who is God can be known only in worship and praise. Now, that is a beautiful introduction, and no doubt that book is very, very long <laughs> with many, many footnotes and quite full, perhaps, of incredible reflections on the person and work of God and his, his unity and simplicity, omniscience and transcendence and all these things. Yet, as Beyer, Oswald Beyer, a hero of mine, would say to something along this type of dogmatic study, quote, study that begins with the teaching about the Trinity ignores or minimizes the problem of unfaith, sin, lostness, despair, infectung, ungodliness. This, these are the people reading this book. These are the people to whom you are speaking, who, yes, have a lot of wonderful thoughts about who God is, but are in primary need of knowing what he has done. This is the limit that the distinction between law and gospel places upon the work of a preacher and theologian for the sake of sinners, the very people for whom Jesus gave his life. As Luther would point out in his commentary on Galatians, that unfaith um, is his part is the root of sin. And what he means by that is that before Adam and Eve took the apple, they had already ceased believing in the goodness of the giver of all good, giver of all good things. Did God really say in the hands of the now unbelieving sinner is probably not. Who really knows? Let's sit and speculate for a while on this possible God. Whereas what God has done in his son is to say, this is precisely who I am for you. And so, as Oswald Bayer again um, argues, this fundamental experience of being a sinner, homo peccator, is best illustrated by the account of Genesis 32 and Jacob's struggle at the Jabbok. He argues that this account shows most clearly what happens when the God who justifies meets a sinful person. In this verbal exchange, he writes, which is a life and death struggle for mutual recognition, faith makes God, facet deum. Faith is a creator of the deity, fides et creatrix divinitatis. Unbelief, however, makes itself an idolater. It is in this verbal exchange between the sinful human and the God who justifies, thus between God and faith, that Jesus Christ is present and truly God and truly human. It is Christ's office and work to put an end to this conflict between the naked God, the Deus Nudus, 
and sinful humans. This is the work of a pastor to end this conflict. We can't control necessarily whose eyes or ears are opened by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we can address the conflict when we believe it to be so, when we understand the people to whom we are speaking are involved in just this fight. It doesn't matter how long they've been a Christian. In fact, it could be exacerbated by a long obedience where you begin to see family and friends get sick and die, and you begin to see the the sin, death, and the devil continue to weigh you down. And as pastor, this is the conflict I'm in. Help me. And we have been given this word to say. The Deus Nudus, the naked God, to whom which most worship is directed in hopes of having this millstone that is grinding me down removed. This Deus Nudus is now clothed and precisely through the mouth of a preacher. I mean, take, for instance, speculative worship of God as Father or God in Himself, the universe. You know, you know people like this. You know people who speak about God in abstract and speculative terms. This God ends up being tyrannical, frightening, and ultimately um, uh, homicidal across the board to every single person, because this will be the trajectory of your life, that someday finality will come, and this God, unclothed, is one who we rail against, we, we approach for um, a blessing, we're afraid of being cursed by, and ultimately we fear, and not in a reverent, worshipful way, but in the way that wonders whether or not He exists at all. This is the unknown God of the um, uh, unclothed. Well, God the Spirit can certainly be just as abstract. The flip side of the same thing. God the Spirit is doing a new thing. He's just right, right over the horizon. And if we can all band together, church, and get our, get our um, priorities and pull the same way and follow these, this, my, my new outline for five ways of, of, you know, bringing the harvest to the people, well, then we will find and catch the Spirit. And He will then take this millstone off my back. He will then actually bring me a hope that came from endurance that was produced by suffering. Well, that hope comes through the mouth of a preacher by clothing this God in Christ himself for sinners. See, this, um, uh, we heard Professor Sondager say, the doctrine of divine attributes then is one is set out of reflection or holy scripture. The one God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and all these expressions of the love of God Systematic theology must make bold claims about its knowledge and service of this one Lord. The invisible God must be seen and known in the visible. I agree with her to this respect, but God is seen and known by his own sacrifice in the visible through the person and work of Christ on the cross for sinners. And the cross is not limited to just Good Friday. This is a three-day um, cataclysmic event of the, the, the dawning of the new world. As Paul writes in, in Romans 8, this was the, he is now the firstborn of the new creation, and all creation is now longing to be redeemed and revealed in the way that he has now been. Preacher, go to your people. Give them what God has so, has so preciously purchased in his Son for their sake. This is... Um, how the law and gospel, the distinction between the demands and God's mercy, between being the ungodly and the God who justifies, between the homo peccator and the, the deus justificans, this is how this distinction holds the preacher fast to the preaching of the gospel. Because it's not speculative, and it's not abstract, 
It is as concrete as your own very blood, as your own life and death, as your own insert the problem that immediately came to mind and the one for which he died. So this is why the distinction in law and gospel, situated as it is in the very identity of God himself, is so crucial for an understanding of pastoral care. So I ran across this this, um, this play, again, from Oswald Bayer. I mean, I'm, I'm just uh, unabashedly um, a huge fan and, um, and devour what he, he has written and said. But he had a reference to a, a play called Uba Dane Marionotten Theater, which is uh, in the Marionette Theater. And so as one, as you should be when you're studying what to do, you follow these footnotes and you sort of learn new things. And it's an interesting play. And where it is, it's basically two people discussing um, a variety of things. But one of the, the, um, the, the discussions revolves around a young man. And he's dancing with great freedom. And he's sort of, you know, like if you have children, like sort of oblivious, you know, dance like no one's watching, which of course is told to people who are terrified of everyone watching them at all times. But nevertheless, um, you know, and so he was talking about this man who he had then seen another man who was sort of sitting off in the corner. And he said that other man used to dance with such freedom until he caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror and became self-conscious and afraid and hid behind a tree and the voice of God called out, where are you? And he said, I was naked, ashamed, and afraid. Now, he doesn't go there, but he almost does, because he says this. He said that it seemed, because the man asked him, how could this possibly be? That this, how did it happen that this transition from this, this um, carefree soul became so sort of curved in on himself? Curvatus in se est, as Luther would say. Um, it seemed, he says, as he took a pinch of snuff, <laughs> That's, that's been excised now in the modern version, um, that, um, that I hadn't read the third chapter of the book of Genesis with sufficient attention. If a man wasn't familiar with that initial period of all human development, it would be difficult to have a fruitful discussion with him about later developments and even more difficult to talk about the ultimate situation. Grace appears, he says, most purely in that human form, which either has no consciousness or an infinite consciousness, that is, in the puppet or the God. Does that mean, I said in some bewilderment, that we must eat again of the tree of knowledge in order to return to the state of innocence? Of course, he said, but that's the final chapter in the history of the world. So I was struck by this because as Paul writes, as we said in Romans 8, Jesus, as the firstborn of the new creation, has revealed the, or has clothed God in mercy and thereby has, in fact, inaugurated this final chapter of human history whereby his preachers are sent into the world proclaiming something that has happened. We have seen God. The only, uh, we, we, have, we have tasted him. We have experienced him. He has risen. And this proclamation does not end, as Luther knew, one time off, but it is constant so that the sinner can continue to confess. And those whom he predestined, Paul writes, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? Indeed, Paul, what shall we say as preachers and pastors? We shall say to the world, this is your God. Sinner, come home to your friend. This is what he has done for you, and this is not a one-off event but each and every day.
See, when we understand our God as he who justifies the ungodly, then by relation, we are those very people justified as ungodly by faith. Then the entirety of our pastoral understanding of ministry and the priesthood of all believers, meaning in each and every sphere of your vocational influence, is duly changed. We become not the practitioners of millstones, but beggars who found food. As Luther said, his final words, Vincent Bettler, das ist frei. We are beggars. This is true. We become people who preach not out of necessity, not out of obligation, but out of necessity, as those who have had Christ driven home in our hearts by another, we become then conduits of that very grace for the sake of the world. Because we remain this side of heaven, as Luther pointed out many times, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just and by faith sinful. But we know, as pastors primarily, that by faith in the promise of God himself, secured as it were as was on the cross and, and, uh, and resurrection for our sake, that we are those centered, sinners held not in the hands of an angry God, but in the clothed God who justifies sinners. Now, this is not foreign, as I said in the beginning, to my uh, tradition. Um, Cranmer, as he was putting together his, um, his uh, service book, which is very similar to the one we use uh, today, in particular the 1549 and the 1552 versions, well, he was working with some uh, formularies from, um, from the continent, the, the Lutheran formularies, and one of the options that he had was to choose a sentence of Scripture to put uh, right before the peace. So right after the confession in our, in our um, uh, service, we have a confession of sin, and then there's these four, there's this opportunity for the priest to stand and give a sentence of scripture, which is meant to be comforting. And then we rise and we say, the peace of the Lord be with you. So these became known as what's called the comfortable words. And if you really want to know why I'm an Anglican, it's because of these four sentences. Because in each and every worship service, we, by design, despite the, the difficulty of the preacher, despite the, the incompetence in many cases of the preacher, or despite the fact that you had a bad breakfast or something happened, or despite all the things that can go into making church confusing, your child's yelling at you, it's too hot, the person next to you smells bad, like someone can't sing it all right in your ear, all these things happen, and Cranmer knew that, and he particularly knew that his clergy couldn't preach out of a bag. I mean, that he, actually wrote, he actually wrote a book of homilies that he um, instructed them to preach. Until you could write something like this, you must preach these very words. Uh, so that was, would that that would be the case today. Um, nevertheless, um, Cranmer knew this. So we sit there and we confess um, the things done and left undone, that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. And in the old language, there is no health in us is what we confess each and every week, if not every day. And then what is the response to this? Priest stands up and doesn't pick just one of four, but gives these comfortable words which have become a bedrock of my, my pastoral slash theological ministry uh, and will be until I die. The priest stands and says, hear what comfortable words our Savior Christ saith unto all. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here also, what St. Paul said, this is a true saying and worthy of all people to be received. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
And hear also what St. John says. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Peace of the Lord be with you. And so you see, the pastoral care is at the heart of our theological service to the world when we are so bounded by this proclamation of the God who justifies the ungodly. You see this, it's been likened by a friend of mine named Ashley Knoll <coughs> to a falcon's gyre. This is how I picture when I come into every pulpit that I'm ever in, this is the person. It doesn't matter if they're on the vestry or the elder board or if they are the, the bishop, uh, maybe per, per, uh, precisely if they're the bishop. It doesn't matter if they're um, the person who is, is, is uh, you know, crawled in on their hands and knees or has been there since four polishing the silver. They are this person that Jesus addresses. Come unto me, all you, you, the bishop, you, the person polishing the silver, clearly you, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So all of a sudden, people begin to say, even me? Well, I had a really bad week. I used to really believe this stuff, and now I'm having a hard time. Like, even me? Like, I had a really bad fight with my, with my spouse today. Even me? I got fired. All who are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. And the falcon begins to spiral down. Well, for God so loved the world, loved the world, and he gave his son so that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this person, the burdened, the confused, the one wrestling with the dual millstones of the unclothed God begins to say, well, wait, that's how much he loved me was to send his son. Well, listen, even what St. Paul says, this is a true saying worthy of all to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save you, sinners, even me. Preacher, this can't be true. Oh, it's true, because listen to even what St. John says. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And so, in conclusion, I want to leave you with something that it's, it's hard for me to say it's radical because it's really um, just simply the, the gospel and it's become something so, um, something so transformative in my life that it's difficult to, um, to, to speak of a time before. It's like, um, you know, when did you, what's your earliest memory? Well, my earliest memory was not um, uh, filled with wonder, love, and praise of our risen and, um, and, and forgiving Lord. Um, I don't know when that was, but I know it, what it is now. And as you go into the pastorate, as, in whatever capacity your vocation leads you, as mother, as husband, as friend, as boss, as um, co-worker, as teacher, as um, um, yoga instructor, whatever the case may be, um, you will be dealing with people who God has not, um, uh, God has specifically designated as those to whom you are sent, i.e. sinners, in the hands of the now justifying God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, pick a few questions. Oh, sure. Okay. Sure. Okay. Um, <coughs> thank you very much, uh, Dr. Koch. We have about uh, 15 minutes, I think. So, we do have some time for questions. And I see uh, Daniel's at the microphone there.
for sure. Yes, of course. And so if we start with the God that justifies and we start with the cross and the sinful condition, how would you recommend that we then yes. move the person from that into yes. the, the Holy Trinity? Yes. And not simply in the sense that they are uh, receiving the benefits of the mercy and the love within the Trinity, but now they're <coughs> actively participating in this. Yes. And Good question. Yes. But there's a sense in which the work of God doesn't simply wipe the slate clean, yes. but also elevates the person, yes. and I would say brings them into the life of the Holy Trinity as yes. participants. Could you? Yes, good question. Um, that's, that's, that's good. And, and far be it for me. Um, you know, uh, to, to imply in any way that the doctrine of the Trinity is not um, one of our great um, doctrines. I think that, you know, I'm, I was caught up for a while in sort of the debates between economic and ontological or eminent. You may know these things, you know, God and himself and then God what he does and then Karl Rahner smished them together. And, you know, in this discussion, I think what gets lost is the, well, the role of, of the the preacher, and what I mean by that is that I think that the way that you work back into the Trinity is that if God is revealed, as First John, uh, I mean John 1 says, you know, in the Son we behold his glory, you know, we've seen him, well then we begin to work back with a much different picture, like I said, of God in the Trinity, in the divine, you know, the perichoresis and things, um, as the Father who, who sacrificed his own Son for the sake of the world. And so that's an identity of God in the Trinity, which is no longer abstract. And so the doctrine of God that doesn't begin with the, 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 the crucial um, reality that has been revealed at great lengths, then becomes something that can be edifying to read, but ultimately, I think, does not force the proclamation of of the gospel. This is what I would argue. And I think this is why um, dogmatic textbooks about the, the, the doctrine of God as, as Father and of Spirit are interesting and right, and you have to read them, and you have to work through them, and you have to incorporate um, the great tradition in the reflection. But in light of the, the, the revelation of the, what we would say, the economic trinity, at the very least, of, of what he has done. And so, I was, I was struck by this because I used to find, so in the Church of England, there's something called Curate Sunday, which is Trinity Sunday, and they always make the curate preach because it's guaranteed to preach something heretical. That was the joke. And so, um, <coughs> and so for the first three years of my curacy, lo and behold, I was preaching Curate Sunday. And I had labored under sermons about the Trinity for my entire life, and, and by and large, people sort of sidestep it, you know. I mean, there are very few uh, kind of like, well, it's a mystery, and um, let's look at the epistle today, you know, and something. And, but I wasn't content with that because I said, this is the person of God, God, colon, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not, you know, uh, an abstraction. This has to be um, it has to be something of the gospel. And this is part of, at least for me and my thinking, where I, I preached a sermon um, where it was called the, 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 Trinity, the gospel is the Trinity. The Trinity is, is the gospel. That the action and person and identity unclothed of God in the world then puts the creator God, you know, people try to change Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into creator, sustainer, redeemer, like avoid that. Back away with your holsters, you know, that's what I say to that. But, um, but um, that when you realize 
it, and this has aspects of then further thought, is that God, the creator God, you know, the, the God of, of, the, of the wind and the waves, the God who spoke the world into existence, is no longer even in his divine majesty to be feared or to be, to be unknown. He is the father who lovingly created and gave you the world, Adam. Like, you trust this God. You do not deny him. You do not reject him. And this is how the reflection on God the Father can be very expansive in this way, in, when also bounded by the, the, the gospel, by the proclamation. Because then creation becomes something not to be railed against, but something to be, to be um, protected and loved and enjoyed, but enjoyed as the gift from the now totally understood, repeated so often that I'm annoyed with my pastor, loving father who so loved me that he gave his son for my sake. So then by extension, the spirit becomes that uh, person by whom we are actually brought to faith through hearing. And so, and then animated and, draw, and sent, as Cranmer says in our lectionary, I mean, our, our service every Sunday, that we have, you have prepared all good works for us to walk in. Like this is the, the guidance and the leading of the spirit by, who leads us into all good works, and we are not afraid of this spirit, nor are we unconcerned, are we ignorant of his identity, because he is the very spirit by whom our troubled consciences have been addressed as sinners in the hands of our now loving Father. And so this is the dance. The dance is much more pleasant than um, a 17-volume um, discussion about God's simplicity, um, and it's shorter, but it's no less profound and no less um, sort of... Um, scriptural. I mean, this is the argument, is that we, we are bound by the scriptures. We can reflect outside of them, but we are brought up short into, in, by them, rightly so, as, as Christian theologians. And, um, you know, we have been given only so much to say about God and himself. And in fact, Paul begins, as you know, in Romans 9 and 10 um, and 11, begins to dig into this great mystery. You know, Paul, I mean, go back and read it. I mean, this is actually just by extension. I grew up in a um, sort of just general kind of evangelical kind of um, home, loving, sweet, learned how to play guitar. It was great. You know, it was wonderful. I have no reactions to the church at all. I didn't have any positive sort of feelings for it either, but nevertheless. Um, and I had never read Romans 9, 10, and 11, ever in my entire life. A lot of like um, the paranesis of Paul, you know, a lot of, um, uh, uh, what is that, the prayer of Jabez and things, but nothing. And that made me, like, I became like a desert, depressed desert monk for like six months, just reading those three chapters. I was like, what is this about? Because God in himself is rightly terrifying and frightening and all-powerful and to be ultimately just thrown prostrate before, as Paul does at the end of Romans 11, says, oh, how glorious and unsearchable are the riches and majesty of God. And this is the proper posture, but not entirely so in light of the gospel, because as right as that is, God has taken the further step to make peace where there was no peace. And so that becomes the reflection on the Trinity, because I, I love, um, you know, I love the, uh, uh, the theology about these things and read, you know, widely in the Eastern Orthodox Fathers and, and sort of the, um, the sort of the neo-reformed have a lot to say about the Trinity and, and, um, and, and Luther for that matter. I mean, there's a whole book in Christine Helmer, you know, Martin Luther's Doctrine of the Trinity. I commend it to you. It's good. But it doesn't preach um, until it's bounded by this, um, this distinction. And that, at least that's my argument. I mean, if you don't, it's like I told my congregation, which they, they listen to us. If you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. And, um, and they do uh, frequently. Yes, it's, uh, does anyone have a job? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, I'm just, so again, I hope that helps because I, I, I would want nothing more than to, um, 
than to, to think about maybe writing or thinking more deeply about um, the, the active, the, the, the positive portrayal of the, of the now non-mysterious aspects of the Trinity that we can get behind um, while bounded conceptually so that we don't spin off into, um, into all manner of, of false gods, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. Dr. Corzine? Yeah. Herr Doktor. I'll repeat what you said. I don't even have a mic now. Um, <laughs> you described at the beginning the important difference between a distinction between one gospel and a, what did you say? Inverse, inverse proportion. proportion. Yes. How would you demonstrate that distinction <coughs> clearly so that people know when they're doing it, wrongly yeah. or rightly? Well, I think that you, that's a good question. I think that, um, you know, the, um, the, the sort of quid pro quo idea, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the one, um, what quad in face est, that, that, that I'm getting that wrong, but it's the, the, the medieval axiom, do what is in you and God will do the rest. You know, this was what Luther was, was laboring under. This is the, um, you know, just baldly speaking with Tetzel, you know, as a soul, a, a coin in the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I mean, that's essentially uh, law and gospel as to, as, as inversely proportional. Because, you know, if you haven't given enough copper, well then pay up, but if you're given too much, hey, chill out, you know, we don't need any super, super Christians around here, you're making everyone uncomfortable, you know, and, um, and that's often how it's preached, and it's subtle, this is what, this is why, again, and I've had some wonderful discussions with the, your faculty, which is a marvelous faculty, I mean, that goes about, I mean, just I mean, one person, but amazing, and, and I'm going to be digesting this for a long time, but I think, um, I do agree that this concept, um, uh, law and gospel, the distinction is, as Luther himself said, an art form. Like it's, a, it's, it's learning a new language. It's learning to hear people actually in their burdens, in their fears. I mean, this is the pastoral, um, as Luther would say, he said, listen for the creature waiting, like the creature who is hiding behind the tree, who's just waiting for, um, in, their, in their guilt, fear, and shame to be crushed, rightly so. And many people go to church to be rightly crushed. I mean, this is a phenomenon you'll see, and it's very disturbing, but nevertheless, um, this will happen. And you listen for this, and it comes out as something of a if I had, then God would. Or if thus had happened, then perhaps God would. And this is essentially, if I had given more into the coffer, then my grandmother wouldn't be so long in purgatory. If I had just quad in facere s, have done, I'm, I'm butchering that, whatever, no one knows how Latin's pronounced anyway. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, if, if I'm doing what's in me, then why is this happening to me? This is what's happening. This is what people are saying. If I'm doing, every, I'm doing my best, God, lay off, which is totally reoriented by faith through hearing, where you can become someone who says with the Apostle Paul that we rejoice in our sufferings. And that's a, I can't tell you that. You can tell me that. I can tell you that on some of my own experiences, but that is the mercy and grace of God alone. Nothing of my doing and certainly nothing of my offering into the plate of divine um, uh, merit. And so I think that's where, if you're, the question if you're asking how does this happen, listen to where people are still afraid of God. 
Um, and in some cases, as you all have the keys, they should be, you know? I mean, there's some people who should exhibit more fear of God, in which case you can explain to them, you know, like in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, remember that, where he's, I'm now explaining to the computer exactly how much he can do with a, I might be dating myself there, but go back and watch it. <laughs> but, you know, there are some people, and this is a very, I don't like to talk about it because it's the most unpleasant part of the job, but there's some people who are in your congregations or in your sphere who recognize you as a pastor, so have given you some authority that sometimes you have to, to tell them what's up. And so that's a clear example. But most of the people are wondering why the suffering is happening, and it's not producing endurance, and it's not producing character, and it's not producing hope. And it's precisely because they have not been introduced to the, the author of even, yes, their life as the loving father who gave his life for sinners. And this is what, I mean, I've seen, you can listen. I mean, I don't recommend it to, for a full diet, but go listen to random sermon on God TV or, or whatever the, you know, the, the, the TVN network, or go, go just sort of pick random podcasts from, and just listen to the sermon, and there will be some hint, if not explicitly, of you're in the situation you're in now, um, not because Christ promised suffering to all who followed him, but because of your lack of faith, your inability to pay up, and ultimately decisions that you um, should rightly, uh, you know, have, um, have rightly destroyed your life, um, come to the altar. You're like, well, um, I'm going to go to Soul Cycle, or I'm going to go to yoga, or I'm going to get the heck out of here because this is not in any way alleviating any of my burdens. And didn't Jesus say something like that? I mean, go, go, to, a, 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 go to a youth group. Um, or, or a group of college kids and ask them the first word that comes to mind when they think of Christianity, and freedom and uh, comfort will not be those two words that will come to mind. And yet, go back and read, I don't have my Bible with me, but uh, Paul's intro to his second letter of Corinthians, where he says uh, that we pray that you are comforted by the comforter who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we, as the comforted, will be able to comfort others who need comfort, the one, the comfort that we received. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but we, that should be a word for us. Or for freedom, as he tells the Galatians, Christ has set you free. Well, what in the world would that be other than the fact that I once was burdened and I have, they've been lifted and that this suffering that I'm living has somehow produced character, and character has produced, I mean, endurance, and endurance has produced character, and somehow this hope poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit has, has not put me to shame. I can, I probably should go to seminary now. I mean, that's what happened. So, that's the answer to that, Jacob. Um, I, think, I think we're done. I can stay. I'll be here all, no, I'm just kidding. I'll be, I've got CDs, I have a banjo, I'm just kidding. No, oh, I, I'm, no I'm, CDs, I'm, sorry. Um, and your book's pretty expensive, but if you, uh, you get a you know get a cheaper version, we'd be happy I'm to. I'm trying to make a manja copy of it. So it's, we, uh, that's yeah, we'd be happy to we'd be happy to sell it uh, for you. We have uh, though uh, come to the top of the hour. This is an ongoing discussion, an ongoing uh, conversation that we're privileged to be part of at this uh, seminary uh, community. Uh, you um, ended your presentation with a reference to 2 Corinthians, and I think I'm going to do, do the same uh, for just a bit later on in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul speaks of how Christ has made us ministers, not of the letter which kills, but which the Spirit gives life. And that, of course, is uh, the preaching uh, of the gospel, and uh, you have helped us, I think, do that better. 
uh, both those of us who are already doing it as those who are in the office and those who aspire to the office, and then all Christians, according to their vocation and calling, as they are given opportunity uh, to proclaim uh, the mercies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're very grateful. We wish you the Lord's uh, you. Um, uh, mercy for your travel back to Louisville and, and all of the excitement of beginning a new uh, parish call then in uh, Mount Pleasant, uh, South Carolina. Very much, Tom. Thanks Appreciate very much once Thank again. You. Join me in thanking our, Thank our guests. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.